I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Be reading Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, teach us from your word. I pray that we would listen carefully to what you speak to us from the scriptures. And in listening, we would be instructed. Being instructed, our lives would be changed. And in being changed, we would be transformed to the image of your Son so that we would give glory to you and that we might have much joy in living this life that you have given us through your Son. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all need to hear a text like this, and it might be for a variety of reasons. Some might need to hear this in a passage like this because you do not live with a sobriety about the future. You live as though there is not coming a day of harvest. You live as though the things that you do now don't really matter for the future. You think that there are little to no consequences for living in rebellion against God. And you need to hear this passage because this totally contradicts that view of life and of the future. It says, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Many of you are not in that category. You realize that there is a sobriety about life, a seriousness to it, that there is coming a day of harvest. And you know that you've been saved completely by grace, that were you left to yourself, you would perish in your sins, but you know that Jesus Christ has died for you, has risen to give you newness of life, and you know that you have the Holy Spirit in your life, and you need to walk in that Spirit. You need to bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
And perhaps you just need another pep talk to keep on going. Or maybe you realize that this life is hard. You know what you need to do. You know what is good and right and true. And you've grown weary. You know that the spiritual life is not as easy as it was made out to be. And when you first came to faith, you know that battling against your flesh is a daily ordeal. Or maybe you have relationships in your life that demand of you a love that you just don't have the capacity to give. Or you're facing a particular trial that is so serious and so hard that you feel like you want to give up. Well, a text like this is to remind you that the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so for whatever station of life you're in, this passage is for you to heed, to be encouraged by, to be exhorted by. The goal is not necessarily to terrify you that God is not mocked, although it may be if you think that he can be mocked. Its goal is to get you by the Spirit to do good until the day that God calls you home. And I find that really interesting because the main theme of this book of Galatians has been justification by faith. That means that it's not dependent on your works that gets you to heaven. You are justified, that is to be declared righteous by God on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ. And yet this book that has so staunchly opposed any notion that works are what save you comes to the final punch of it and wants to get you to do good works. And yet it's not contradicting itself. Rather, it is seeing that the natural outworking of justification by faith is the reception of the Spirit in your life so that you will live a life according to God's ways rather than in contradiction to them. And one of the ways that this text is going to get us to see that is by camping out on this idea that you reap what you sow. Because you reap what you sow, we are being exhorted here to sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. That's the main idea. So let's work through this passage and see what it says to us. It starts off in verse 6 with kind of an odd statement that at first glance may not have much to do with the sowing and reaping idea. It tells us, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. I could maybe categorize this idea as sow to the spirit by sharing. Sow to the spirit by sharing. We've been told in verse 25 of chapter 5, that if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And some very practical ways of doing that have been unfolded for us. It tells us that we are to restore those who are caught in a transgression in a spirit of gentleness. It says in chapter 6, verse 2, that we are to bear one another's burdens. It says in chapter 6, verse 3, that we are to basically not be conceited. And then it comes... In verse 6 again, to instruct those who are taught to share the good things with those one who teaches. And so we're really in the 
camp here of figuring out, do we walk by the Spirit or do we walk by the flesh? Are we keeping in step with the Spirit or are we keeping in step with the flesh? And so a question that comes up to identify that is, how are you doing with sharing? We've already been asked, do we bear one another's burdens? Do we restore those caught in sin in the spirit of gentleness? But another specific instruction about keeping in step with the Spirit is to share, particularly with those who teach you. The key word in this sentence is that word share. In the Greek, it's actually the first word of the sentence. Just to kind of highlight it for us, we are to share. The people who do the sharing are those who are taught the word. This is a, a biblical teaching that those who are instructed really share with those who do the instructing. And it's important to understand it is an idea of sharing. It's not necessarily this idea of just pure payment or hiring a mercenary. Hear what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul expresses the relationship between him and the Philippians as one of partnership. And the partnership was them basically sending him financial help in order to continue his ministry. They helped for meeting his needs. And he views it as a sharing, as a partnership. Those who are taught the word are to share with the one who is teaching. This is a common biblical theme. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, again Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It acknowledges that there are particular ones who labor within the church, overseeing the church and leading, and they're to be respected and esteemed in love because of their work. The ones who have this responsibility to lead and to teach are provided for though by those who benefit from their service. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 19, it says, Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. And the Levites were the class that God had identified, or the tribe that were to do the priestly duties and ministerial duties across Israel. And they're to be taken care of by the people of Israel in their work. In Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 12, it identifies that for the church, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And Jesus instructs his disciples as they go about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he says to them not to acquire gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. The idea was as they went into the various towns preaching, they would receive help from those that they preached to. Paul tells the Corinthian church it's appropriate to support those who preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 7 through 14 says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. 
Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 7-14. through 14. And there we really see the connection to this text. There's this idea that those who are teaching are sowing the word, sowing spiritual things, and they reap, in a sense, a material benefit from it. The sowing and reaping that comes. And so back in chapter 6 of Galatians, as Paul instructs the Galatians that the one who taught, taught, is taught is to share all good things with the one who teaches, really develops this idea both of bearing each other's burdens, which is to, the teacher is bearing the burdens of others by teaching the word, and then those who are taught are bearing the teacher's burdens by helping to sustain his physical needs. And it leads directly into the idea of sowing and reaping. And so Paul gives this warning as this idea of sowing and reaping is laid out for us. In verse 7 of Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's a serious warning. Do not be deceived. Some language that you hear throughout the New Testament, and it really harkens back to the very beginning of the Bible where Satan slithers into the garden. Actually, he doesn't slither. His, uh, there's still legs on that creature at that point. Comes in the garden, spreading lies, and deceives Eve. And as we read in our text from John 8, all Satan does is lie all the time. And so there are lies all over this world. And one of the biggest lies is that you can mock God. That you can live this life in mockery of God. To mock God has this idea of to sneer at. It literally means to turn the nose up at God. And this statement says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And yet we might think, wait a second. God is mocked. Almost every day. No, not almost. He's mocked every day. Some of us have been mockers of God. In fact, all of us before Christ have been mockers of him. God is mocked when his existence is denied. God is mocked when his laws are flouted. God is mocked when we declare good evil and evil good. God is mocked when the nations try to burst his bonds from them. People taunt God when they call on him to do some sort of sign to show his power. God is mocked every day. So how is this true? It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And so we have to ask, how is God not mocked? How is he not mocked? Because millions of people every day across this planet Mock him. The great way 
that God is not mocked is explained by this phrase, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God is not mocked because there is a harvest that is coming. And what you sow will be reaped. We are so deluded at times that we think we can sow seeds of unrighteousness and immorality and defiance of God, and it will have no consequences whatsoever. That's as delusional as a farmer thinking that he can sow a banana crop and think that he's going to harvest peaches. Or a farmer sowing wheat and think that he's going to get blueberries. You're that level of delusional if you think that you can live this life in a path of unrighteousness and not reap a harvest of that. The reality is you will sow what you reap. Every farmer in the history of the world who has sowed into the ground a seed of wheat will harvest wheat. They don't find that it turns into some alien plant. It's a law that God has written into this world. Genesis 8:22. After the flood, God makes this promise, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There's seed time and there's harvest. The cycle of our seasons. We need to understand that there is a greater season going on. We live in a time of sowing, and there will come a time of reaping. We live in seed time, and the harvest is coming. And that reality is proof that God is not mocked. The way that sowing and reaping works in this setting is explained for us in verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are basically two fields, the field of the flesh and the field of the Holy Spirit. And we're sowing in one of those two fields. The first field is the field of your flesh, the one who sows to his own flesh. It's talked about the flesh in chapter 5 quite extensively. It talks about in verse 17, the desires of the flesh, and verse 16, the desires of the flesh. It talks in verse 19 of chapter 5, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. To sow to the flesh is basically to satisfy the flesh's desires. The flesh is that part of you that seeks to live a life independent of God, independent of his strength, independent of his ways. It is to follow a pattern of life that is against God. Your own flesh is corrupt 
James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's who you are apart from God. You are full of desires that are unrighteous and ungodly. And to sow to your own flesh is to go down that path, to constantly indulge in the works of the flesh. This is a present participle of sowing to his own flesh. That means that it's an ongoing, continuous action. It's the characteristic of your life. This is the life that you lead. The consequence of this, if you sow to the flesh, is that you will reap from the flesh corruption. It's another word for destruction. That crop of corruption comes from the ongoing habitual activity of indulging in the desires of your flesh. The harvest is future. You may not see the harvest right now, It's seed time. The harvest hasn't come. But you can get a picture for how this works. You know that when you sow to the desire for anger, what kind of crop you temporarily reap? You reap broken relationships. Or if you sow to jealousy and envy, you know what you reap. You reap discontentment and broken relationships. Or when you sow to sexual immorality, what do you reap? Often, broken relationships, discontentment, and other physical maladies that can come into your flesh. The harvest that's speaking about here is not present, it is the future. It is referring to a corruption that matches the kind of harvest that comes for those who sow to the Spirit, which is eternal life. So speaking of eternal corruption, eternal destruction, an eternal kind of life that is away from God, that does not experience his joys and his peace. The second kind of sowing and reaping that's given for us is sowing to the Spirit. It's so important to note The contrast here, because in verse 8 it says, the one who sows to his own flesh. It's speaking about you, what's innate to you. But when you sow to the Spirit, you need to acknowledge that when you're sowing to the Spirit, that is not innate to you. This is God's Spirit, who is a gift to those who are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. The Spirit is a pure gift. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a kindness of God given to you. And when you sow to the Spirit, it means that you are going to be pursuing the desires of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, which is listed out for us in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is a life that is patterned by the fact that you are pursuing the Spirit's desires in all avenues of life. Wherever He leads, you are following. 
I don't think that it means you're doing so perfectly, but it is the continual habit of your life to sow to the Spirit rather than to the flesh. When you reap from the flesh, you get corruption. But when you reap from the Spirit, who again is a pure gift, what you will reap is eternal life. This too is looking towards the future, towards a great harvest that will come. But even now you see the kind of invasion of eternal life into this side of heaven. When you walk by the Spirit, you pursue things like love and joy and peace. And when you do that, you find that relationships are healed. Things go better, not in the sense that you don't face trials, but in the sense that you can have contentment in the midst of trials, that you can have a joy that weathers the storms. And you begin to see that invasion of eternal life into the present, not because the world is transformed in the removal of sin, but because your own heart is being conformed into the image of Christ. And you begin to see the fruit of a life lived by the Spirit right now. And it gives you a foretaste of the glory of that day when you reap eternal life, that life that never ends, that is present with God in all of its joy and perfection, free from sin and living in complete harmony with the saints in heaven and with God himself and with the Lamb. Romans chapter 6, verses 21 through 23, tells us, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, we've spent months thinking about how we are justified, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But we must not come to the wrong conclusion that that means that sanctification and life in the Spirit are irrelevant now. Brothers and sisters, you have been justified by faith in the grace of Jesus Christ, not so that you can now pursue a path free from God's ways, but so now that you have the power by the Spirit to live in accordance with God's ways. And now you are to follow that path of sanctification until that day that He calls you home, and you will find there's a great harvest of eternal life, and you will not get credit for that because it is the presence of the Spirit in you working those things out through you. And yet, in a great paradox, you are responsible to sow to the Spirit who has been given to you. Don't neglect your duty to follow the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit and to sow to the Spirit. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you're going to reap what you sow. This leads us to verse 9. 
which gives us encouragement in this path of walking by the Spirit, sowing to the Spirit. And it's a charge to us to not grow weary of doing good. This is kind of a natural outworking of what's just been said because if you are going to sow to the Spirit, if you're going to follow the path of the Spirit, you are going to find that there are almost immediate challenges in opposition to that. And so you may grow weary in this doing good, which is to sow to the Spirit. Some reasons for why it's easy to grow weary in doing good is because the good that you do is not always embraced by the people that you do it to. If you're a parent, you know all about this. All you do all day long is try to do good to the people in your home, and you never stumble in that at all. And it's not always met with thanksgiving. Or if you're a child, all you do all day long is trying to please your parents and do good to them. And it's always, not always met with appreciation, is it? Or if you're a worker and you seek to honor the Lord in your work, it's not always acknowledged by your boss. Or you know that you've got to love somebody who's really unlovable. And they don't appreciate your expressions of love. And you might just say, that's it. I want to give up. It's easy to grow weary because doing good instead of getting good is opposite to the way that we are naturally built. Our world runs on the principle that it is better to get than to give. But Jesus tells us it's better to give than to get. And so our flesh is against us in this. And so giving is exhausting because we give of ourselves and yet our flesh would resist us in our giving. That in itself is a good reason to do good. It's also hard to continue on in the path of sowing to the Spirit and doing good because we don't necessarily see the fruit right away. We live in an instant culture where we want results right away. You can buy a frozen meal and have it on your plate in 120 seconds ready to eat. We want whatever we want, and we want it now. And we've lost sight of the long term. We want to be able to express our opinion right away and have the whole world know about it and respond in submission to what we have said as soon as we say it on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. There is an immediacy that we demand, and yet the reality of doing good is that you don't see the results right away. The harvest analogy continues well. A, a, a farmer sows his seed in the ground, and he leaves it there. And if he expects it to have fruit the next day, he's delusional. You have to wait. And in the waiting, it can be easy to lose Heart. To lose heart is to lose enthusiasm, to be discouraged, and yet we're charged. Let us not grow weary of doing good. 
the potential culmination of growing weary is at the end of verse 9, it's giving up. That phrase at the end of verse 9, giving up, can also be translated faint, or some translations put it as don't grow weary at the end. It's the same language that's used in Matthew 15, 32, when Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. To faint is just to come to a full stop. So the temptation for us is, is if you're sowing to the Spirit and you're doing good and you grow weary and you don't want to do it anymore and you just give up and you say, that's it. It could be that you're fighting against some sin in your life. And by fighting, I mean you're really fighting. You're really taking measures to try to put that sin to death in you. You're trying to go against the anger or the pornography or the lying or whatever it is and you're fighting against it. You think, this is hard. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and it's still going to be there and I'm going to have to fight against it and it's exhausting. And you may be on the verge of saying, that's it. I'm just throwing in the towel. This is just part of who I am. I need to accept me for me and the rest of the world needs to accept me for me and I'm not dealing with it anymore. That's giving up. Or the person in your life that you know the Lord has called you to love with an unwavering love and they're not responding. You just think, that's it. I've done what I can. I'm done with this person. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Why? For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. A farmer who sows his seed and tends to it for half the summer and sees a little bit of the crop coming up and then in the middle of the summer he says, this is too hot, it's too hard, I'm sick of this, I'm done. Loses out on harvesting the crop. The promise of God is you will reap if you do not give up. This is to take the train to the end of the tracks, to the run the race to the finish line, to shovel the coal into the steam engine until you get there. You run the race until you're done. And this is by the Spirit and to the Spirit. He will help you daily ask for His help. What is doing good? What is the good we are to do? Although only God is intrinsically good, He has given us His Spirit who is good he dwells in us, and so it's not too far-fetched that we would now share in God's good works. Third John, verse 11 says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. The good works that we are to do are really the fruit of the Spirit. 
that's been identified for us. It's also this restoration that's talked about in chapter 6, verse 1. It's also bearing one another's burdens. Just a few other examples of doing good. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That comes in the context as Paul is encouraging the saints at Corinth to collect funds for the saints at Jerusalem. It's the good work of generosity. Romans chapter 14, verse 21 gives us another example of what good is, or rather, actually what good is not. It says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. What's the opposite of good? Anything that causes your brother to stumble. What's good? Not causing your brother to stumble, and in fact, giving things up in your own life that are going to help others live the Christian life. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 10 speaks about widows and speaks about one who has a reputation for good works and then tells us what those good works are. Good works are if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19 has a charge to those who are rich. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's another good work, generosity. Titus chapter 3, verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Helping in cases of urgent need is another good work. There's the example in Acts chapter 9, 36 to 39 of Dorcas, who was full of good works and acts of charity. She died, and as people mourned for her, it says all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Very practical ministry. Making garments is an example of good works. Another good work, the last example, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Doing good includes how you speak to others. You can do that in about five minutes. It can begin sowing to the Spirit. Don't hold me to the five minutes, by the way. Well, we must not grow weary because we will reap. Gives us one further admonition, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This asks or answers the question, who are we to do good to? I think you can answer that question if you read the text. Who are you to do good to? Everyone. Everyone. And then it also answers the question, when are we to do this good? Well, it says, as we have opportunity. Now, you might think about that as you wait 
until there comes kind of knocking at your door this opportunity, almost like a Girl Scout who comes knocking at your door. Would you like to buy some cookies? Someone says, would you like to do good today? And you're like, oh, now I need to obey that verse. Now's the time. I got to get up and I got to do something good. That's not what it means when it says, as we have opportunity. It speaks about a period of time. It's that word kairos that speaks to a specific period of time. It's the same word used in verse 9 when it says, in due season we will reap. And so it tells us that there are these periods of time. There's a time for reaping and there's a time for sowing. And the indication is now we are in the time of sowing, not in the time of reaping. And so do you have opportunity? Yes, because you live in the time of sowing. You have opportunity today and tomorrow until the day you die to sow the seed of good works by the Spirit. You don't have to wait for a good to come knocking at your door or an opportunity to come knocking at your door. It is now. Now is seed time. And we wait for the harvest. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then it narrows it down a little bit. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's a way to describe those who believe in Jesus Christ and belong to the family of God. It doesn't mean you only do good to other Christians, but it means you especially do good to other Christians. And the reason is simple. If you can't love the people in your own household... What business do you have to try to go to love people outside of your household? It's a fraud. This works in a family setting. If you're not loving your husband or you're not loving your wife or you're not loving your children and then you go out into your workplace or you go out into the church and you are known as the most loving person, you're a hypocrite. Because the people that God has put in your life to be most interacting with and show the love of Christ to are the people that you spend the most time with. And if you can't love them, you really have no business of loving anyone else. And so this is why Paul exhorts us that we're especially to love those who are the household of faith. Moreover, if the world sees us come to them with attempts of love, and we try to love those who are unbelievers with the love of Christ, and they look at us and they think, you can't even love the people in your own church. We look like hypocrites to them. And so we start with the people around us and loving them. Not to the neglect of others around us, but especially to those who are nearest to us. So, we need to sow to the Spirit. Why? Well, the Spirit's been giving to, given to us. He is a gift to us. And if we sow to the Spirit without losing heart, we will reap. The alternative is you give up, you sow to the flesh. That doesn't end well. May God help us to walk this path with all vigilance and devotion. Let us pray. Father, you have encouraged us that 
If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap. You've warned us that if we sow to the flesh, we will reap. And so, Father, help us to walk in the path that you have called us to. If we've received the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Help us to know how to do that, to be willing to put off our own selfishness, to not grow weary, not to faint, but to continue on to sow to the Spirit, to do what is good. Show us, Father, the opportunities that are present all around us, that we live in a time of sowing seed. And give us great confidence in your word that a harvest is coming. Oh Lord, may we all be ready for that day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.